the first Bible reading today comes from Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With, with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I can... Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all of Jesus' disciples deserted him and fled. The second Bible reading is from Matthew, chapter 26, verse 57 to 75. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest, he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. 
Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Well, I think I've met everyone. I'm Chris. Welcome. We've just heard of Jesus' arrest. And with it, the violence begins. Up until now, the scenes have been peaceful, though the storm clouds have been building. Jesus anointed with perfume for his burial. The Passover meal, this is my body given for you. The prayer in the garden, if possible, take this cup from me. But the distant thunder which has been out there has been coming closer and becoming louder and now with Judas and his militia suddenly appearing armed with swords and clubs, the lightning is striking, the thunder claps, the violence of the storm erupts. The scene before us bristles with expectation of violence. The words sword or swords and clubs are mentioned six times in ten short verses. Swords is the thread running through this scene with each part of the scene describing the sword of a friend. Not necessarily literal swords, though of course they are there. Jesus' companion, cutting off someone's ear. But swords, of course, can be metaphorical as well as literal. Judas's kiss, for example. That was a sword that cut deep. That was a sword used by a friend against a friend. So this passage gets us wondering about swords and friends and gives us perhaps a different way to think about Easter. Tonight I want us to think about three swords. The kiss, the choice, and the plan. First of all, the kiss. The scene begins with the appearance of a large crowd carrying swords and clubs coming to arrest Jesus. Now, this is jarring. Here is Jesus. He's not a murderer. He's not leading a rebellion. He's a teacher who heals people, who does good, not harm. And yet an armed group of thugs appear suddenly at night in a peaceful garden to arrest him. This is not right. This is wrong. It's like a discordant note. It's like we're sitting in a choral concert and when someone's phone goes off. It's wrong. It doesn't fit. Like also how he's betrayed. How is he betrayed? Not with a shout, not with a punch, but with a kiss from a friend, one of the 12 who shared three years of life with Jesus, who ate and drank with him, who'd seen the miracles, who, who'd heard what he'd said, who witnessed the lives that Jesus changed and transformed and restored. He saw the good that Jesus did. This is a friend who's now betraying a friend, not in a moment of weakness like Peter, who's about to not deny him three times, but as a result of careful planning. And that's what makes this worse. This betrayal is premeditated. 
Down to the detail, Judas had to arrange a sign. It's dark, only he could, Judas, could identify to the soldiers which of the men in the olive grove was Jesus to have them arrest him. So they need a prearranged sign. But the sign that he chose, now he could have chosen something else. Another sign which didn't twist the knife so much in Jesus. A sign which might have revealed what Judas truly thought about Jesus, a sign which was more decent, actually, which was more honest of where Judas was up to. Maybe an outstretched arm, a pointed finger, a voice raised, but no. He chose a sign of welcome, a sign of affection between friends, a kiss, a kiss. And what makes this even more callous is that Jesus, of course, knew what was happening. He knew this was an act. And Judas knew that Jesus knew that it was an act. Because Judas was there when Jesus had outed him at the Passover meal, when Jesus had spilt the beans, told the disciples one of them would betray him. And even then, Judas kept up the charade and said, surely not me, Lord. But Jesus outed him, yes, it's you. So Judas knew that Jesus knew that he was being false. And yet instead of having the honesty of saying what he thought, Judas kept up the act and he betrayed Jesus with this fake, false sign of friendship, the kiss of a friend. It was bad enough for a friend betraying him, but to betray him with a kiss, it's like sticking the knife in and twisting it round. And yet the staggering thing in all of this is how Jesus responds. Did you notice that? I mean, surely would, that, now would be a time for Jesus to say something cutting, to put Judas in his place, to speak a few home truths about what he's really like. But he doesn't. He just simply says, do what you came for. He doesn't fight it. He accepts it. And then he adds the word, friend. He responds with kindness. He could have used a different word, do what you came for, traitor. Do what you came for, Satan. But he responds with grace. Do what you came for, friend. And so in the first strange twist, the most powerful sword that has been wielded thus far is that by Jesus, the friend of sinners, in the words of grace to Judas. I call it a sword that he's wielded because Jesus' words of grace to Judas cut Judas very deep. Later we read in chapter 27 verse 1, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. So he confessed, I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. Now, he couldn't have said that if Jesus had spoken harshly to him. But, of course, they threw, threw the money back at him. Um, sorry, when they threw it back at him, Judas threw the money into the temple and then went away and hung himself. What a tragedy. What a response to grace. Grace does that, actually. The heart of Easter is an act of grace that God gives to each of us. He gives his son, his only son, to die for us, to call us friend. And for many of us, of course, this is wonderful. (laughs) This is a, 
This is beautiful, but others hate it. It offends them, it insults them, we push it away, we'd rather reject Jesus' words of grace than accept them. The first sword which cuts was the kiss of a friend more cutting than Judas' kiss of Jesus was Jesus' kiss of Judas in his words of grace to him. Next sword. Now this one seems obvious because when the militia step forward and, and seize Jesus and arrest him, one of Jesus' friends reaches for the sword, draws it out, it's all set in slow motion, strikes the, the, the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The sword of a friend, isn't it? Jesus' friend, his companion, the one who steps up for him, who defends him. That's the second sword, right? Well, it could be, except again, it's not the most powerful thing that happens here. What's most powerful are Jesus' words, put your sword away, which cuts through the heat of the moment. Put your sword away. Now that speaks to us, doesn't it? You know, all of us, we fear violent extremism. Jesus tells his rather extremist and zealous companion to put his sword away. Now you hear what he's saying. Violence conducted in Jesus' name can never be justified. Not even here when Jesus himself was the one being threatened. Now this is worth saying because a large stumbling block to people listening to Jesus is the sad truth that at different times in Christian history, Jesus' followers have drawn the sword in his name. We think of the Crusades and the Inquisition, black spots in sort of family history. But let me say, if you're here tonight and you're one of those people who's closed your ears to Jesus because of this and other things, please understand from what Jesus says here that those actions in our history are directly opposed to what Jesus himself taught. So that, yes, people may have described themselves as followers of Jesus and done these things, but they weren't following Jesus when they committed violence in his name. They were going directly against the clear teaching of Jesus, you see. And Jesus will have none of it. The same grace that Jesus extends to Judas in calling him friend, it's not a one-off moment, it's a grace which Jesus commands all his followers to have. He says, put your swords away. Does this mean that Christians can't defend themselves? No, because in verse 55, Jesus defends himself when he says, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? So Jesus does defend himself. He challenges the injustice of how he's being treated. So he isn't saying you can't open your mouth, you must let other people walk all over you. And again, this speaks to us, doesn't it? I mean, all of us know what's happened to Israel Folau. Sacked from the NRL because wisely or unwisely, he shared a Bible verse on Twitter, which was, or Instagram, whatever it was, which was in itself a response to this new extremism of progressive morality which is sort of being imposed on all of us, requiring everyone to endorse choices and lifestyles which go against the Creator's design. Now, whatever you think of his action, 
Israel's. It taps into the fear that Christians now have of speaking up and voicing their opinion against this new morality, which has been kind of pushed with a legalistic zeal by sections of corporate Australia and our parliament and our community. And there are two extreme responses. There's those who want to get vindictive and come out all guns blazing, and Jesus says, put your sword away. And then there's those who want to retreat and pull their heads in and say nothing. And to them we can take our cue from Jesus, who defended himself. Well, how do you do that? Well, you speak with grace. Christians, last I checked, were citizens in this country as well. We can speak as much as anyone else can. But if we're attacked, well, then we can ask, is this a safe conversation? You know, which treats a minority viewpoint with respect. And if that doesn't work, we can ask whether the person we're talking to has room to allow an alternate point of view to the one they're holding because the alternate point of view was in fact the majority point of view in Australia until very recently because surely a society that's tolerant of diversity wouldn't be intolerant of views that are different to their own, would it? What we won't do is shout or become violent because, says Jesus, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. He's speaking of a truth in human relationships. Violence begets violence. So violence conducted in Jesus' name can never, ever be justified. Put your sword away. All who draw the sword will die from the sword. And then Jesus says something staggering which would have made the jaws of all his disciples drop to the floor. He says, anyway, I can outgun them if I want to. He says, don't you think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, this is mind-blowing. One Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. 12 legions of soldiers is 72,000 soldiers. But Jesus doesn't just have soldiers to call on. He has angels, angels from heaven, more than 72,000 angels from heaven in reserve who will come immediately to his aid at the Father's word, which Jesus knows the Father will immediately give. All he has to do is ask. Doesn't that blow your mind? It's mind-blowing on several levels. On the one hand, wouldn't it have been awesome just to see this happening? I mean, what an astounding deliverance. Can you imagine? Except, on the other hand, if that happened then that wouldn't have meant a deliverance for us, would it? Because it was God's plan all along for the events of Easter to happen, and Jesus knew this. He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen in this way? And that makes this opt-out clause doubly remarkable. That so much did the Father love the Son and have regard for him, that should his Son had just asked for it, the father would have pulled the plug on his thousands of years old plan to save us and instead he would have put all that aside and saved his son and he would have done it in an instant with firepower from heaven. I think this is a brilliant counterbalance to the father's silence in Gethsemane. Um, 
Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and just before this passage, of course, Jesus knows that he is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. And face to face with that awful prospect, three times he pleads with his father to take this cup of wrath away from him. Three times, the answer he gets from heaven is silence. And it's possible for us to hear of that silence and then think the father cruel. But that would be a mistake. The father is not indifferent to his son's cries. The father delights in giving good gifts to everyone who asks him, even we who are evil, says Jesus. How much more does the father delight in giving his one and only son who's never sinned, his one and only son who was there when he made the world together? You know, how much more would the father love to give his son what he wants? And yet here is, in Gethsemane, is the selfless son of God praying his most needy, his most personal his most ardent, honest prayer, the prayer the Father would have loved to have answered. And yet out of love for the world, he didn't. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So there's silence which is born out of love for the world. But now... At the moment of Jesus' arrest, there's this brilliant counterbalance to that silence because here is an escape plan provided by the Father, not hypothetical, but real, a plan which, if actioned, would override all previous plans laid through the prophets laid out in scriptures. Meaning that Jesus had a choice. He wasn't being forced to go to the cross. God wasn't a, a kind of cosmic child abuser, abusing an innocent, you know, forcing him to do something forcing him to be punished for something he didn't do. It, it was Jesus' decision to go through with it. And even knowing this escape plan, he still decided to go through with his father's plan. That's the astounding thing. Now that is the true sort of a friend, of Jesus our friend, who wields his choice like a sword to fight for us because that's the only way we can be saved. That's the import of Jesus' words. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say that it must happen in this way? And this brings us to the third sort of a friend. The first was the kiss of Jesus in the words of grace to Judas. The second was Jesus' choice not to call on his father to enact the escape plan. The third sort of a friend is the plan, the plan of the Father. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you didn't arrest me. But all this has taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. The true sword here is not the swords of the crowd who've come to arrest Jesus, but the Father's plan set out in the writings of the prophets. This cuts through everything. Just to illustrate uh, the, the plan of the prophets earlier in this chapter, Jesus had told his disciples, this very night all of you will fall away on account of me because it's written. And then he quotes a prophet, the prophet Zechariah. He, he prophesied about this very night, hundreds of years earlier. He said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered and it will be fulfilled this very night. And yet at the end of our reading, no sooner had Jesus said that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled, that we read that all the disciples then deserted him and fled. 
just as Zechariah the prophet had laid out 600 years beforehand. You know, there are so many prophecies which find fulfillment over Easter, specific prophecies, from him sharing his bread with his betrayer to the amount given to Judas to betray Jesus, 30 silver coins, it's mentioned in the prophet Jeremiah, to Jesus' silence at his trial, Isaiah 53, to Jesus being crucified between two thieves, to the soldiers gambling over Jesus' seamless robe, Psalm 22, to his hands and his feet being pierced, another one from Psalm 22, to no bones being broken, to his cry of abandonment on the cross, to him being buried in a rich man's tomb, to his resurrection on the third day. So much detail. And all this prophesied hundreds of years beforehand by different prophets which makes this immensely compelling that this really is the plan of God and it ought to be believed. But here Jesus says scripture needs to be fulfilled because they say it must happen in this way and we think, well, why? Why must it all happen according to all the detail? Is Jesus a details freak? Is he like type A personality or something? Is it just fatalism on his part? You know, because it's been planned, because it's been written out in the past, it's now predestined and the future for Jesus is fixed. No, because otherwise, why would the Father have given Jesus an escape option? There are different ways to answer this, but I want to finish by zeroing in on one detail. Judas is described here as the betrayer. Literally, in the Greek language, it's the one who hands him over. Jesus said this would happen, that he'd be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. And we read, that's what does happen. Judas hands him over to the temple soldiers. The temple soldiers hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate hands him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. He gets handed over again and again. And maybe you've read those words handed over and you haven't really thought about them, you've just kind of glossed over them. But they have content and they speak of horror. The words go back a thousand years to Jesus' ancestor, legal ancestor, King David, his forebear. David, at the end of his reign in 2 Samuel 24, the last chapter in the books of Samuel, the last thing we read of him doing is conducting a census of all his fighting men. And back then, for some reason, this was understood by David and by his army general to be a grievous sin. Now, I don't know exactly what was sinful about conducting a census, um, in the book of Leviticus, God makes provision for this in the law where he says, if a census is made, you must pay a shekel, a unit of currency, for each male fighter who's registered in the census. Now, maybe that was because there was something sinful about this and atonement needed to be made. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the issue is. But nevertheless, Joab objects, his army general, and David says, no, I want it done. David's the king, his word overrules, so Joab goes off and conducts a census and nine months later he comes back with the census data in. And David is conscience-stricken. For whatever reason they understand, but we don't, he realises that he as the king has incurred a national guilt upon the people. He has, he's responsible for a national sin having taken place. It's very serious. 
And the Lord sends his prophet Gad, who says to David, okay, David, you've got to choose the punishment. What's it going to be? Three years of famine, three months of being pursued by your enemies, or three days of plague. What's it going to be, David? You're the king. You have to decide. How do you decide that? David is filled with remorse. He says, God, you're merciful. You, You decide. And then he says, and here's the point, only please don't let me be handed over to the nations. So, in other words, the thing that King David feared the most, more than three years of famine, more than three months of defeat, more than three days of plague, was what would happen to him if he, the Lord's anointed, was handed over to the nations, that they would do what they did with them, they would have their sport with him. And this is what happens to Jesus, you see. We read the words, Judas handed him over. The words don't mean much to us, but in light of David's fear, they've got content. The soldiers would take Jesus and they would have their sport with him. And we'll hear about this tomorrow. But it was much more than that. It was the shame, the shame of being the Lord's anointed and being handed over to the nations and the indignity of what happened. But it was more than that. When the Christ of Israel was handed over, that was the ultimate sign, you see, of of the world being under God's curse. When the Lord's anointed was cursed. That's as low as it went. And this is what the scriptures foretold. And Jesus realized this must happen. This has more significance than Notre Dame Cathedral burning. Why? Not just because it's written, it's because of our condition. You see, in thousands of ways, small and large, we've been like Judas, haven't we? We've handed ourselves over to sin. We've sold out on Jesus. We're capable of so much good, but we sell out on him. We betray him. What we know he wants of us, his grace towards us, which we turn a blind eye to and just do our own thing. We've sold out on him again and again in so many, many ways. Which means that naturally, unaided, without God, we are under God's curse. And that's why it's written that there is no other way, that, sorry, it must happen because in the way that Jesus spoke of, the prophet spoke of, because there's no other way that we can be saved. You see, since the very first sin in the garden, all who've sinned come under God's curse and to redeem us from that curse, Jesus knew that he himself who didn't deserve it, deserve any punishment, he himself who was in fellowship with his father had to place himself under that curse. He had to be handed over to the nations so that he could suffer God's curse which fell on him instead of us. There was no other way. And what we've seen tonight is that at every stage in this scene of his arrest, Jesus was fighting that this is what would happen. In his words of grace to Judas, in the choice not to call on his father, though he could have, in his sticking with God's plan. At every point, he fights to be handed over to become God's curse for us. 
truly he is a friend of sinners. Isn't he? He's your friend. And he's mine. As the musicians come up, we have time in an item now to reflect. And I'd like you, I'd like to invite you to open yourself to seeing what Jesus did for you, to believe that he is your friend, and to turn to him and accept him who died for you.